And if you're with me, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 25 this morning. By the way, I see a few new faces. My name's Morgan. I'm the teaching pastor here. It's a privilege each week to open God's Word and to preach. Uh, we were in a series through the book of Matthew, and we took a pause during the summer to go back to the beginning. The series now, we're in Genesis, and so uh, we're moving along, kind of taking a broad stroke over the book to see the big picture of God's beginning plan. And so this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 2. But before we get there, I want you to think about this statement that a man recently made. He said this, be the next evolution of human. Build your autonomous self. Those words are uh, the words of a man named Brian Johnson, and his company is called Blueprint. Brian Johnson is a 45-year-old who claims to have the body of a 21-year-old. He claims to have slowed his pace of aging by 31 years. And he claims that others can do it too. Well, how does Brian Johnson do it? Well, Brian Johnson essentially hired a team of 30 doctors and health experts who essentially live with him. And they carefully measure his data, his diet, And his exercise, you too can have this for just $2 million a year. Brian Johnson is searching for the new tree of life. He's looking for a sustainable life source, that is a self-sustaining life source within humans. And his goal is to become the next evolution of the human species, to have true autonomy, Now, this is humanism, and it's very prevalent today. In fact, I'd say humanism is the root of all the other bad isms that we have out there. It's the root of evolutionism. Let's write our own origin story. It's the root of postmodernism, which is that everyone has their own truth within. It's the root of materialism. I want that, and so I'm going to have it, and the person who dies with the most toys at the end of their life, they win. What humanism is, is essentially this. Human potential and all the answers to human life are found within us, not outside of us. That's humanism. And you might cross your arms and say, well, I'm no humanist. I believe there's a God. That there's a creator who gave life and sustains life. You claim to be a theist, but how often do you find yourself living every day like a humanist. All your decisions are based on what you want, what you feel like having or feel like doing. We live a lot of our days not even regarding God, thinking about God, depending on our Creator. We often, so often, too often depend on ourselves, don't we? We don't make the claims of a humanist, but we live like one trying to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make the most for our own life. 
and be independent, make independent decisions and certainly not depend on a creator, a life giver or a life sustainer. So we need to go back to our origin story to see who gave us life. And did the life giver intend for us to evolve to a point where we're self-sustaining? We could be autonomous. Did, did he make us to not need him anymore and to kind of go our own way? Or did this creator create human beings to depend on him, to need him? To depend on Him, to love Him, to believe, and to trust Him with all of our life. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1. And chapter 1 gives us the whole picture of the creation week. Six days God created and finished the heavens and the earth and all that exists within them. On the seventh day He rested. And now Genesis 2 zooms in and focuses just on that sixth day. Specifically the creation of man. And so you could say Genesis 1 emphasizes the subject of the story, the center of the universe, the first cause, and that's God, Elohim, the creator. He's the subject of history. And now Genesis 2 emphasizes the main object of history, which is the human race, mankind. That's us. So we're going to see here our origin story and see if we need our creator or if we don't need him anymore. In the first point of your outline, I want to just highlight this chapter. I, I have four points to walk through. First, I want you to see God's personal creation of man. God's very personal creation of man. Now again, just a reminder to be here during the scripture reading, because that is when we'll read the whole passage. I'm going to walk through in a quick manner, these verses and these sections. Verses 5 and 6 describe the earth's biosphere before man's creation. Uh, Summary is this, no rain, no farmer, therefore no field growth. Okay, which kind of sets the stage for God's farmer, God's worker. We need a, a man to cultivate the ground, to canal the water, to subdue the earth, which is what he was created to do. And so in Uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man. Now I want to pause here, and I want you to, I wonder if you noticed the title for God in this chapter. It's different than in the first chapter. In the first chapter, he's referred to as God. In this chapter, he is the Lord God. And the Lord in your Bible is probably in all caps which indicates that it's the word Yahweh, Yahweh. And so it's Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew language. And, and these two titles are together throughout the chapter, almost in every verse. And this is the first place in Scripture that we see the title for God, Yahweh. And so I want you to see the significance of this. God calls himself Yahweh, or the God of Israel, when he speaks to Moses from the burning bush. He says, I am Yahweh. That's my name. I'm the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Yahweh signifies God's unique relationship with his people. It's God's covenant name. The name that he has covenanting with his people 
in the Old Testament. It was Israel. And so by placing these two titles together, Yahweh and Elohim, the author is telling us something of theological significance. Get this. Elohim means that God is transcendent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is high above the transcendent, majestic creator. And Yahweh also indicates that this same God is the personal, intimate, and covenant-keeping Lord of His people. So you put those titles together and you see God's transcendence and His personal nature. And when does His personal nature come into creation? Does it come when He creates the birds or the, the sea animals? Does it come when He creates the galaxies? It comes when He creates His most personal creature. Us. Men and women. Mankind. It's a real sweet picture of God's intimate relationship with His most personal creature. And that is man. And so Genesis 2.7, Then the Lord God formed the man with what material? Of dust from the ground. Dirt from the earth. There's a play on words here in the Hebrew. Man is the Hebrew word Adam, where we get Adam. Earth or ground is the Hebrew word Adama. They sound very similar. Similar root, similar sound, and apparently a similar substance. Did you know that if you break down dirt to its basic elements, you have majority oxygen, you have some calcium, some iron. You break down the human body to its basic elements, what do you find? Majority oxygen, some calcium, iron. We're all pieces of dirt. The composition is eerily similar. I laughed with this image in my head of scientists in lab coats. You know, they have gloves on. Their environment is sterile, squeaky clean. It has to be the perfect temperature. And they're in this laboratory with their special instruments that cost thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they have their Petri dishes with different pieces of human tissue and whatever else is in there, samples of human DNA. And they have, you know, these computers that are high-powered, computing all the data that they need. And, and you have human beings, these scientists in lab coats, and they're in the lab trying to create artificial human life. They're trying to clone humans or even clone animals. And, and they're not having much viable success. And then there's God, who's like, Hey, give me a handful of that dirt over there. I'll make you a man. He is amazing. And I, I just got to think, like the Lord's sense of humor comes out here. You are a piece of dirt. And he didn't need the sterile lab. He doesn't need the special instruments to give and create human life. Just give him a handful of the earth. And he can do it. And I think the significance of us being formed from dust is just our humble origins. We were not made with heavenly dust. We were made with the earth's dust. And if a man would boast in himself and his own success and his own intelligence and his own achievements and his own beauty, know this. He's a piece of dirt just like you and I. We are not like God. We are of the earth. Our bodies are of the earth. Yet in this one verse... I see us going from dust to glory. 
Because every other creature, living creature, was made from the earth. But only one creature gets the personal kiss of heaven. God formed the man of the dust of the ground. But God directly breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The other other living creatures, it says God formed them. Yes, God was directly involved in their creation. But only with human beings do we see him face to face, breathe into our nostrils the breath of life. He intimately and personally gave us life. He is an intimate creator. He fashioned us in His image. We saw that in Genesis 1. He formed us in His likeness and He breathed into each of us life. It's very personal. It's very intimate. And we see this intimate picture continue even in the passage that we just sang about in Psalm 139. David writes, You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise You, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So from conception in the womb to the first breath outside of the womb to the last breath before the grave, God creates and God sustains human life. It's His work. And it's the work that He is most intimately and personally involved in. Have you taken your first breath today, at least the one you're conscious of, for granted? Just expected it to come like you deserve to live. God gave you that breath, and He sustains it every day. Do we acknowledge Him with it? Do we worship Him for it? Or do you take it for granted? I mean, who are we to end human life prematurely? Who are we to try to extend human life, to create it or sustain it artificially? Are we God? Are we life givers? Or are we life receivers? God says in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, am He, and there's no other God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none that can deliver out of my hand. Don't you see that the breath you have, the life you are living is grace? It's a gift from God. What did Adam do to deserve his first breath? Did you choose the hour or the place that you would be born? The family that you'd be born into? The life you have, can't you see it's grace? It starts with grace. Life is a gift, and it's a gift from heaven, God Himself. And if this life is a gift, what makes you think that everlasting life is something that you can earn or something you deserve? If this life is sourced and sustained by God, what makes you think that you'll find everlasting life in someone else or even within yourself? No, no, no. All of life is in God. John 1, in Him was life. Speaking of Jesus. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. Will you find the true meaning of life here or within yourself? No, no, you'll only find it in the life giver. And that is Yahweh Elohim. I love this picture, this account in John 6. Jesus asks His disciples, He's just preached a hard message and a lot of people have left Him. The crowds have gone away and Jesus turns to His disciples and says, are you going to leave too? There's a high cost to following Me. It might cost you your life. Are you going to leave? And then what does Peter say? Oh Lord, where else can we go for You have the words of what? Eternal life. Peter in that moment saw it. There's nowhere else to go. Life, eternal life, is found in God. Don't you see that from the very beginning we were made to know our Creator? We were made to have personal relationship with Him, to depend for our life, our physical life, and eternal life on Him and Him alone. We are His personal creation. And yet, we as His personal creatures meant to depend on Him, to trust in Him for life, we have gone our own way. We've decided that we can sustain our own lives, that we can have autonomy, that we don't need our Creator. What a tragedy. What a tragedy when we were made for such a personal and dependent relationship with our Creator. We are God's personal creature. Personal creation. Point number two, I want you to see God's provisional care for man. God, it's not deism where God makes man and then walks away. God personally provides for and cares for mankind. Did you notice how many gifts Adam got in one day? How many gifts did Adam get in one day? It, this is just a show of God's abundant grace. Genesis 2. The title, A Show of God's Abundant Grace for Man. I mean, all these things God gave Adam at zero cost. First, we already mentioned it, life. Adam did nothing to earn or deserve his first breath, but God breathed into him the breath of life. Our lives, the ability to live, to be living and here today is a gift from God. Don't take it for granted. When I was in Uganda, I spoke with a man. His name was Jehoshaphat. And just so you know, in Uganda, it's, it's funny. They have Ugandan names that are hard for us to pronounce. And so they choose English names that are easier for us. And um, if they're Christians, they choose Bible names. And this guy chose Jehoshaphat, which was, I thought was funny. But um, anyways, I asked him, um, hey, Jehoshaphat, what is most important to you? What's most important in your life? Because I notice there's a lot of things that I think are important where I come from, but you don't think they're important here. And he, he gives me the order. Here's the things that are important in life. He said, first, God. Okay, we're on the same page, Jehoshaphat. The second thing he said, it was interesting, he said life. And then he said family. And then he said his job. Okay, so God, life, family, job. And I thought that was interesting. I said, why did you put it in that order? Like, I would have not put life second, but here's what he said. It was interesting to hear the way he thought. He said, well, if God takes away my job, at least I have him, my life, and my family. If God takes away my family, which, by the way, 
with prevalent disease and circumstances out there in Uganda is not far out of the picture. I mean, me and Chris sat in a woman's home. She had lost all her children, and she's caring for her grandchildren. Okay, so not out of reach to think that God might take his family. He says, so if God takes my work and my family, then at least I still am alive. I still have life, and I have God. And if God takes my life, then I have him. Wow. I mean, here's a guy who's grateful for life. Again, how often do we wake up every day ungrateful for our lives? Ungrateful for the circumstances, the people we have to deal with, the trouble, the problems, but we don't recognize we're alive. We've been given life. And that life is not for us to live for ourselves, it's to live for His glory. To honor God with our lives. So He gives him life. God gives Adam a home. The first thing that the first man witnessed was God giving him a home. He gave him a garden. A garden in Eden, it says. You know what Eden means in Hebrew? It means delight. It's another word for like pleasure. So a garden in delight or pleasure. And the author tells us that Eden was in the east. In verse 8, in east was the direction of green, okay? For especially those living in the deserts of Canaan. They thought east, they thought, okay, green, lush. Indiana Jones type archaeologists have scoured the Middle East looking for evidences of the garden. I don't think that the author gave us evidences to look for. I think he's just highlighting the lavish supply of Eden by these landmarks. I mean, you look at the river that flowed through, split into four rivers. That just highlights God's abundant supply of water, which provided an abundance of fruit and trees. So, and then another gift that God gives Adam is food. Food to eat. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice, pleasant to the sight as well. I mean, this is for the foodies out there, those of us who enjoy food. I mean, some of you eat to live, and then others of us, we live to eat. We enjoy food. And here, God gives food not just for nutrition and sustenance, but for pleasure. Beautiful fruits that would please the taste buds and pleases the eyes. So God gives him food. He gives him pleasure. He he gives him natural resources. A river flowing out of Eden to water the garden. It highlights the abundance of the water resource. Not one river, but enough to divide into four. We see access to land and resources in verses 11 and 12, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. Adam had everything he needed for the next gift, and you're going to be surprised by this. The next gift that God gave Adam was work. Do you see work as a gift? Work is a gift. By the way, this is before sin entered the world. This is when God said it was very good. That's Work is in there. <laughs> Don't take it out. It's part of God's good design for man. See, Adam was not put in the garden to lounge on a bed of leaves and to eat grapes all day. No, God put him in the garden. Verse 15, look at it. It's in your Bible. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To manage. 
to develop systems and processes for managing the fruit and the farm there. Then he gave them the job of uh, naming the animals. Adam had work to do, tasks to accomplish. He had the grand purpose in productivity. He was supposed to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The ability to work is a gift from God, and it's part of our purpose. Tasks, objectives, productivity, that's part of what it means to be human. Whether that's at home, in the home, or out in the marketplace, we are to be workers, men and women both. And work is a very good gift. Yes, sin and the curse made it more burdensome, painful, It developed the sweat on your brow when you're working hard. That's all from sin. But work in its essence is a part of our good design. Just a comment on this. If you don't like work and your goal is to retire because that is when you think the work is done, it's not. It's not. Maybe work out in the marketplace is done, but you still got work to do in the home, husbands. Wives, you still got work to do in the home. You've got grandchildren, potentially, or children to disciple, to invest in, to spend time with, to serve. And by the way, there's no no age limit on serving in the church. God doesn't say you can serve in the church until you're 65, and then you retire from church service. No, the Lord intends for you still to be productive, to accomplish tasks, to work. It's part of your design. And by the way, if you don't like work, you won't like heaven. Have you thought about this? Do you think the work stops when you get into heaven? No, Revelation 22, we're going to read it later, it paints a picture of us serving our Lord. We we worship Him through service, and we're still ruling in the new heavens and the new earth. We've got a job to do. We've got a purpose, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful. I don't want to be sitting on a cloud in the sky eating grapes. I want to serve my Lord. I want to be productive for His glory. And to do it in His face, oh man, that's something I look forward to. The ability to work is a privilege. It's a joy. And we should see it as a gift more often than a burden. Are you thankful for work? The other two gifts, not to be quickly overlooked, we're going to get to them, but God gives Adam a wife which is a precious gift from the Lord, a partner for life, a perfect helper. God's best gift for Adam comes in his wife. And then he has the ability to have children, to plan for his children to marry and have children and start their own families. I mean, look at this list. How many of these things do you have? All of you have most of them, right? Most of you have all of them. And maybe you're sitting there, you immediately look to the things you don't have. Well, I don't have a husband yet. Well, I don't have a wife yet. Or I don't have kids. And so you're complaining about the things you don't have, but you don't see the overwhelming graciousness and generosity of God of giving you most of the other things. How many of these things do you take for granted every day? How many of these things are you really thankful for every day? Can't you see... Everything you have, all the good things in life, is God's abundant grace. Grace upon grace was lavished upon Adam's life. 
And even if you may not have one or two or three of these things, God has given you the rest. He sustains you and He gives you life. If you were to ask me before I studied this passage, what does it mean to be human? I would say, well, we are created in the image of God, yes. We are created after the likeness of God, yes. Genesis 1, 26-28. Yeah, we were created to rule, to subdue, to represent and rule on behalf of God. We were created to have relationship with God and relationship with others. Be sons and daughters of God brothers and sisters to each other. But after this chapter, I would add this. Human beings, what does it mean to be human? Human beings are the premier recipients of God's grace. No other creature gets God's grace like we do. Not angels, not animals, but human beings. God lavishes His grace on our lives. Couldn't we be more thankful The tragedy is that every day, men and women would gladly take the gifts, and yet they reject the giver. Let's not do that. Let's be dependent and grateful recipients of God's grace every day. God's provisional care for man. Third point I want you to see is God's probationary command for man. God gives Man, a probationary command in verses 16 and 17. Look at the text. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Two things I want you to notice here. First of all, The command and the consequences are crystal clear. God does not deceive man. God is not looking for an opportunity to have Adam and Eve fail. He was clear. In fact, the language here in the Hebrew, it's like as if uh, the orders are coming from a commander, a general, or a king. He is crystal clear in his command. And he doesn't say, you shall not eat of it. Go ahead, try it out, see what happens. He says, no, no, I promise you something. You eat of this, it's going to go bad. You will surely die. That's a promise. Don't you appreciate that clarity from God? Adam and Eve, neither of them could use the excuse, oh, I was confused. God was unclear about what He says. They can't be uh, misunderstanding or even misrepresent what God said. He was crystal clear. Here's my command, and here are the sure consequences. The second thing I want you to notice here, and this is something we often overlook, provision comes before the prohibition. God doesn't start off with a list of rules. Can't have this, don't do that, X, Y, Z. He says, no, no, no. First, you can have every tree in this garden. Look at how much I've given you. Look at all this fruit. Look at all this fruit that is good to the sight, or pleasant to the sight, and good for food. Look at everything else that I've given you. I've given you everything. You have a lavish supply. You live in the greenest home. I mean, your house would look good on Home and Garden magazine. I've given you everything. But, 
of this one tree you shall not eat. You see the provision comes before the prohibition. God's grace comes before His requests. And that is a pattern throughout Scripture. Israel receives the law when? After they were redeemed from slavery. You read the epistles. What's the pattern? The indicatives. What God has done for you in Christ. The indicatives. The indicatives. Afterward come the imperatives. This is how you then live. Isn't God's pattern good? And before we get to, well... Christianity is just a rule book. It's a bunch of rules that we got to follow. You've got to look at the grace of God. You've got to look at the abundant goodness of God, His character and what He's done, and then look at the rules. And then in light of that, go, how can I not, because of His abundant grace in my life, how can I not obey Him? How can I do this with an ungrateful heart? How can I complain or whine when God has been so good to me? You don't obey because you're you know, begrudgingly doing it out of duty. You obey because you want to. I have grace pouring out of me. I, I can't even hold it all. I want to obey God because He's been so good to me. There's the pattern of the Christian life. You have rested in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He has been abundantly gracious to you in creation, in redemption, through Christ, His most precious gift, in the gifts you have every day, the things you take advantage of, breath, wife, children, job. And in response, if you're his child, you go, man, my dad is the best. I want to honor him with my life. I want to love him with my whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. I want to give him my whole life because he's given me everything and beyond. That's, that's more like the Christian life than a list of rules. But we have to ask the question, why did God plant that pesky tree in the garden? Why did He even put it there? He knew man would fail. Why did God do that? Well, there are different answers. The ultimate answer is this. It, it most glorifies God. God does the things that are according to His will and give Him the most glory. So we have no right to put God on the stand, to test Him, to ask Him questions. Why did you do that? No. God did it for His glory, and His plan glorifies Him. We know also that the answer is not that He's a tyrant. It's not that He's evil. It's not that He's cruel, or He desires for us to fail. He has proven that He's provided every need for Adam. He's given him everything he needs and wants. Everything good, every ounce of love, Adam has access to. So it's not because he's evil or he's cruel. The human answer that we can grapple with is this. God put that tree in the garden as a test of man's loyalty. It was really it was a test of faith. It was a test of love. God didn't create robots that were forced to obey and love Him. God created man and he left him with a decision. Will you receive all of God's gifts by faith? Will you trust him and obey his word? Or will you disbelieve God? Will you deny his promises? Will you distrust his character? And will you disobey his word? That was the test in front of Adam. And he failed. 
And his first failure was not the action or the work of eating the fruit. What I want to show you this weekend next is that his first failure was disbelief. It was a lack of faith, the opposite of faith, unbelief. So I would submit to you that man, even before the fall, was always dependent upon God by faith. It was by faith that we're saved from the very beginning. Trust in God. The question, same question is presented to you today, by the way. Spoiler alert, Adam and Eve fail, and the world is corrupted by sin. You and I sin because of that origin story. We'll get to that again next week. But the decision is placed before you today. Will you trust God? Will you believe and, and will you see all of His grace and His gifts given to you again, primarily through Jesus Christ, a way for mankind to be restored to God, to be brought back into right relationship with Him? Is that God became a man, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died on the cross and paid for our sin, rose again to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives. And if you trust in Him... By faith, you have a way back into right relationship with God. Will you receive that gift by faith? Or will you deny it? Reject Him, reject the giver, take the gifts, and try your own way out. God's promise to you today is the same that He promised Adam. You choose that way, unbelief and disobedience, you will die. You'll be sure of it. Not just physically, but eternally, under the wrath of God, because you've denied His best, His precious gift. You've disbelieved. So don't do that today. Trust in Christ. Receive the good gifts of God by faith. And then as a result, walk in obedience to His Word. So there's God's probationary command to man. And finally, God's perfect complement to men. God's perfect compliment to men. Now remember, what day of creation are we on? The sixth day. Okay, this is a focus on that one day. And at the end of this day, when the creation was finished, that is both male and female were made, that's when God said it is very good. In other words, it is complete, it is whole, it is perfect. But in the middle of the day, God says something is not good. Let's look down at the text. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Men, I want you to repeat after me. It's not good for me to be alone. Say it like you believe it, like God's Word says it. It's not good for me to be alone. It's not good for me to be alone. I know. I know. And God is right. It is not good for us to be alone. And so God makes him a helper fit for him. God creates a helper, but it's not just any helper. It's not man's best friend, you know, a dog. It's not a, a servant in the sense of like just doing whatever I want done or whatever I command you to do. It's a helper that is fit for him. Or another way to see that in the Hebrew is a, a helper that is like him. 
a perfect complement. Gives man a body that fits his body. A mind that fits his mind. A worker that fits his work. A supporter that fits his leadership. Again, God did not give man another man. A friend. A brother. He did not give man a dog or a baboon. In fact, God brings all the, all the animals to Adam to be named. And at the end of it, in verse 20, look at what he says. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So it's not going to be from the animal kingdom. It wasn't until God brought her. And yes, I am clear with my pronouns. Her to him that he exclaimed, this at last, in verse 23. And you can almost hear the sigh of relief, the ex- uh, exclamation of joy, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God gave man a woman. Hallelujah. Praise God. What a gift. And this is God's clear design. Two genders are named, male and female. And there are only two by God's design. Both were created in God's image and after His likeness. They're equal in value, yet they have distinct biology and distinct roles, which we'll get to here. And those roles are perfectly complementary to each other. God made a perfect match for the man and a woman. And the man was created first as the leader, and the woman was created next to be helper. Now, ladies, let's get into the roles here a little bit. I don't want you to look down on the word helper. It gets a bad rap. You know who else was called the helper in Scripture? I've said this before. God, the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper. That was to come to the Lord's new covenant people who trust in Him. He's our greatest helper. And so if that title's good enough for God, it's good enough for you, isn't it? To be a helper. It doesn't mean that you're less than, that you're inferior. It is your role by God's design. And men, I have a rebuke for you. I don't want you to take that word leader lightly. You know what leader means according to Christ's example? It doesn't mean that you take the throne and you bark orders. It means that you take up the apron and you serve. The leader is not the first in line. He's the last. He's the greatest servant. Leaders, God's leaders, they give more than they take. They love others more than themselves. They carry the weight and the responsibility of life. They take the blame. And then when things go well, they give God the glory. Be careful when you take up that word leader. It's a big responsibility. And it's not what the world makes it. It's what Christ makes it. So look at the example of Christ and His leadership as a leader. But they are not made, um, they are not made as one superior over the other. And that is clear by the way that God makes the woman. It's, there's significance here. It's interesting how God does this. If you look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. That's some good anesthesia because 
while he's asleep, he takes one of his ribs and he closes up its place with flesh. That's some serious surgery. But it's from the side. In verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Man, at least she gets the rib and she's not the handful of dirt. And he brings her to the man. Now, that Hebrew word translated rib, really, we think of rib, we think of the bone. It's not just the bone. But that word rib is, is really the whole side of the torso. It includes some flesh, some blood, and the bone. That's why Adam says, not only is this bone of my bone, but it is flesh of my flesh. But the point is, it's not the specific body part that he used, but the area that he used. He used the side of the torso. And what's the significance of that? Well, he doesn't take from the man's head to indicate that this woman would have superiority over the man. He doesn't take from the man's legs or his feet to indicate inferiority. He takes from the side to indicate equality. Equality in value. Equality in honor. Equality as a, as a daughter also made in the likeness and in the image of God. She shares the image and she bears the likeness. And this illustration draws me to think about our relationship with Christ. You know, we are called the bride of Christ. And He is called our groom. And we share, if we trust in Him, we share in His image and we are conformed into His likeness. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. He was born in the likeness of men. Unlike Adam and the rest of us, He lived without sin. He was perfect. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again three days later to destroy the power of the curse of sin and death over us. And get this, when we trust Him for salvation, we're covered in His righteousness. We're united to Him. It is often said that we are in Christ in the Scripture. We abide in Christ. We share in His image. And we're conformed into His likeness. So that on the big wedding day in heaven, the groom, Jesus Christ, will receive His bride, the church, and He'll say, ah, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, look at my side. I purchased them with my blood. What an incredible relationship, a union that we have with Christ. And even an illustration here of that union in our marriage, in our marriages on earth, man and a woman, in our marriage with our Savior in heaven. United to Him. Sharing in His image and likeness. Well, this wedding is a beautiful capstone to the chapter. There is no shame, no guilt. In verse 25, we're told the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's to show us that there's no shame or guilt because there's no sin yet. And so we finish with a wedding celebration. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. One man, one woman, joined one flesh for life. It's an incredible relationship, the highest relationship that human beings can have with each other on earth. And if you want more of an exposition of that, I, I preached a message on Genesis 2.24, this one verse. It's called God's Design for Marriage. It was a couple months ago. You can look back at the archives for more of an exposition on this one verse.
But I want you to see at the end of it all that God's creation is perfect. It's complete. It's very good. God is abundantly gracious and generous to Adam and Eve. Does this sound nice? Does the garden sound good? Do you want to go back? Well, you can't. You can't. Because again, in chapter 3, we're going to see this was lost. The perfect relationship with God, the perfect relationship between men, lost because of sin. But there's hope. This is the beginning of your Bible. If you turn to the end, you're going to see a similar but an even better picture of your future if you believe in Christ. Why don't you turn there? I want you to see the similarity yet the better difference between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. So we've gone from the first chapter, second chapter of our Bible to the last one. I want us to end with this picture of heaven. Better than the garden. Better than the wedding given in Genesis 2. A new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 22, verse 1. This is John's vision that the Lord gave him of the new heavens and the new earth. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's not water flowing from Eden. It's water flowing from God Himself. It's water of life, indicating the very presence of God. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They'll need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And the king says, And behold, I am coming quickly, or soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let that evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Beginning and the Omega, the end. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
What a beautiful picture of a better garden, a better place where God again is there. And our human beings, the evolved species, autonomous, living without their creator, there they are depending on him. The water of life is coming from his throne. We don't need the light because he is the light. We don't need, you know, uh, systems and structures and technology to live by ourselves. We need our creator. And one day we will be united with him, as the text says, face to face. And those who are united with Christ, the ones who will see this scene in heaven, are only those who believe in the words of this book, who take the word that became flesh, receive Jesus Christ by faith. Don't try to work your way to heaven on your own. Don't try to do it. You can't. You don't deserve it. But through the gracious gift of Jesus Christ, you receive him by faith. You can be given this gift of heaven and know eternal life, and be with God forever in paradise. I hope that if you've not received that by faith, that you receive it today. Receive the gospel. Believe. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And Christian, remember where you're going. Remember God's grace in your life. Don't try to, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Be this independent, self-serving, self-centered person. That doesn't make sense. You've been saved by a gracious, all-sovereign, abundant, life-giving Creator. Trust in Him every day. He's got your food. He's got your home. He's got your work. He's got your spouse. He's got your future. Trust Him and depend on Him by faith like we were created to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is good. It's because it's written by you and you are good. You are perfect. You are so gracious and generous and benevolent toward us. We are undeserving. We have all fallen short of your perfect standard. We are not good. Yet God, in your mercy and grace, you've given us a way back to you through Christ. A Savior who has come and took it upon Himself human flesh and did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect and righteous life. He was obedient to the point of death and even in dying, didn't just suffer physically, but suffered spiritually for our sins. Oh, what a gift. And then He is raised to new life, conquering the power of sin and death in our lives. And so that if we trust Christ, we can have new life, be a new creation, and one day see you face to face in glory in heaven. God, I pray that that would be our focus. Fill our hearts with a desire for heaven. A desire for that day where we could see you face to face and enjoy our benevolent, good, kind, gracious creator forever. Help us to live beyond this world. Help us not to be consumed with ourselves, but to trust and depend on you always. And you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.